up in a family that valued performance highly. I earned straight A's. I didn't smoke or drink or hang out with the wrong crowd. And so in my eyes, I was, a, I was quite a righteous person. I grew up in the church. It was something that we did on Sunday morning. We'd get dressed up and put on our smiles. Church didn't mean anything to me. In my teens, I started hanging out with the wrong crowd and partying and drinking and using drugs and really filling in me an, an emptiness. College was a confusing time for me. I broke up with my boyfriend because of his unfaithfulness. So I felt betrayed and lonely and very vulnerable. When a friend of mine from high school invited me to study the Bible with her, I accepted. She was a part of University Bible Fellowship. UBF took more and more of my time and eventually asked me to marry a man whom I did not like. I was isolated from friends. I had no friends aside from people in UBF. After refusing to marry him several times, I became worn down and I finally gave in and I said yes to marrying him. In my 20s, I traded alcoholism for workaholism, and I was working 60, 70 hours a week. When I was 27, I met some other people, and I saw for the first time, like a mirror of myself, I knew, I knew I was all mixed up. I wasn't going to church. I knew higher power from AA meetings, but I was just lost. A week after the wedding, my husband confessed to me that he was in an adulterous relationship with another woman in UBF. I needed to talk to a Christian who correctly handles the word of truth, and Moody Radio came into my mind. The only number that I could recall was Dr. Tony Evans, the Urban Alternative Ministry. A pastor from that ministry talked to me and I briefly told him what happened and what UBF told me. One of his very first questions to me was, Hazel, are you in a cult? And before I could respond, he said, get yourself and your husband out of there quickly. And so that night I left. Six months later, I came back to get my husband out of UBF. He decided to stay, and that's when I told him, I cannot follow you in the cult. I need to follow Christ. My parents got a divorce. My stepmom brought real Christianity into the home and they invited me to a Bible study. For the first time, I saw people that wanted to be in church. And I'm like, well, this is weird. People are actually glad to be here. And I, I just started, I kept going, met some people. I got into a seeker small group and did a lot of listening. My favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you to give you a hope and a future. And so fast forward five years, and that's when I met Hazel in a Bible study. When I first met Dave, he just exuded joy in leading the Bible study. We started hanging out with our group of friends in our Bible study, doing a couple of social things. And then over the next year or two, we eventually got married in, in 2003. Where do our activities and life, our faith, and leadings from the Holy Spirit come together. One of the highlights of our marriage is paying off our mortgage and becoming completely debt-free. And we did it using Financial Peace University. Dave and I have been so blessed with the financial freedom that we've experienced that we want to share it with others. 
and the other one is uh, our decision to homeschool. We want our kids to think biblically and to have a biblical worldview. When we're with neighbors and they see we're different, where does that difference come from? What's the driving force behind us? We want to tell them the story, how Christ changed our lives, and we want them to be saved as well. We want to see them in heaven. We love them. Wow, what a wonderful story. What an amazing story of God's grace. As we go through this series on the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be sharing, showing you some of these stories because this is really why we're doing what we're doing in Mark. Because in Mark, what we discover, just as the case today, uh, life is confusing for us. Life is confusing for people. Life, it's hard, it's difficult, it's full of disappointments, as Hazel was talking about. But Jesus changes everything. And as we study Mark, we are going to see over and over in a variety of different ways that Jesus alone has the power to change our lives. We're going to see that today. So grab your Bible, turn on your Bible, grab a Bible in front of you. We're in Mark chapter 1. And this morning we're going to do four things. We're going to look at the history, the archaeology behind this account or some of these accounts. Then we're going to talk about the subject of demon possession, the subject of healing, and we're going to conclude by the most important issue in this chapter, and that is the authority and the compassion of Jesus Christ. So let's, been, let's begin reading Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Then they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching. Jesus was an amazing teacher because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit or a demon cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon, that would be Peter. And Andrew, Simon, or Peter's mother-in-law, was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. That would be the door of Peter's home. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Now skip down to verse 40. We'll come back to 35 and following next week. 
A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing. Cleansing. Now, now leprosy wasn't just a physical issue. In the Old Testament economy, it also demanded cleansing because it required spiritual separation. Separation from the community. So what Jesus is doing per the Old Testament, per the book of Leviticus, is giving this leper the steps to be restored, not just physically, but also spiritually back into the life and socially the life of the community. Verse 45, instead, he went out and began to talk freely. This is just like us. Jesus does something in our lives and the next minute we totally ignore him. Right? I mean, this is me. Jesus blesses us and, oh yeah, okay, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. And he starts spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, I, I, I love this because there's two things going on. On the one hand, we, saw, we see how overwhelming, deeply entrenched, uh, unsolvable are the problems of the human experience. First century problems are our problems today. But on the other hand, Mark introduces us to the only one who is the solution, the miraculous one, Jesus Christ, who alone can solve our problems. So we have humanity's need here, the raw edge of humanity exposed, if you will, and we have God's divine solution, God's divine remedy. Now Jesus' ministry, it's Mark chapter 1, it's just the first chapter, is just beginning. But Jesus is turning the world upside down. So what I want to do is I want to start with the history and the archaeology for just a moment. Now let me get you oriented. Look at this map with me on the screens. What we have in the center is the Sea of Galilee. It dominated the Galilean region. Now up in the top towards the left it would be the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee is this little village of Capernaum right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now Capernaum in the first century is probably 1,000, 1,500 people, small fishing village, but it was just a little west, not too far west from what was a first century highway that connected Damascus, as in Syria, all the way south into Egypt. And so Capernaum had a lot going for it. Now, let me just take a minute to, to kind of unpack that. What I want you to know is that the Sea of Galilee is just a beautiful area. And when we take people to Israel and we show them the Sea of Galilee, everybody is stunned. And by the way, we're going to Israel next April, 12 days, April into May. There's still room if you're interested. You can talk to my assistant. You can go to our church website. But when we take people and they see the Sea of Galilee, they're just stunned by the beauty. Let me show you a couple pictures that Rhonda and I took 
of the Sea of Galilee. Here we're up on the hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's often surrounded by hills. Let's go to this next one. This is a picture Rhonda took. I know Rhonda took it because I would have never captured the flower. Uh, but it's just, a, it, it, it's just a, a beautiful area. You can see this in the next picture. But what I want you to know is that there's all sorts of archaeology verifying the biblical account we just read. So for example, let's look at this next picture. These are the ruins of first century Capernaum. These are the foundation stones and, and you see some different vessels lying around of what this village would have looked like, at least foundationally, in Jesus' day. Let's go on to the next picture. Here we see a couple other things. We have some wine presses, some stone mills, a couple other uh, things, all very interesting. And the reason we know this is first century is because when it was first uncovered by the archaeologists, there were all sorts of vessels and coins dating to the first century period. But this is where it starts to get interesting. Let's go on to the next picture. This is a Jewish synagogue. Notice in verse 21, a synagogue is mentioned. Now I'm standing there with Tom Doyle, people from our trip. Now this synagogue, unlike the stones we just looked at, is white. It's more of a limestone. That's because the synagogue that's still standing, or portions of it, is from the 3rd, 4th, 5th century A.D. But archaeologists have discovered that right under this synagogue are the remains of the 1st century synagogue where Jesus would have taught where Jesus would have cast out this demon. And we're standing there right on top of it. Now let's go on to the next picture. Look at this picture here. Now look in your Bibles at verse 29. In verse 29 we are told, after the Sabbath services, for the Sabbath meal, everybody goes to, to Peter's house, uh, where his mother-in-law is. Maybe it was his mother-in-law's home. Now what archaeologists have discovered is what they believe to be this home. You're looking at some of the foundations of it. It's about a hundred feet south, just a hundred feet away from the synagogue. And it, it, it's amazing. Now, synagogues, by the way, let me say parenthetically, uh, were started in the uh, 6th century B.C. when the Jews were in exile in Babylon. And synagogues became a place where Jews could gather together, socialize, worship, and study the Torah, study God's Word, study the Old Testament. So as we've seen a couple times in chapter 1, there are synagogues in several places scattered around Israel. And um, where there are synagogues, Jews would tend to build their homes. And so here in this picture, we have, let's put this picture back up, we have this home of Peter. Now we know, we believe this is Peter's home because archaeologists have uncovered uh, debris 
in this home from later in the first century into the second century that's full of religious symbols and, and writing indicating that this was a special place. And then as the next couple of centuries went by, on top of this home was built a church. And the reason a church was built there is because people recognized this was a special holy site. It was Peter's house. So it was a, a venerated site, and, and it was a site that, uh, where the Christians would build a church. And look at this quote we have from church history. The house of the chief apostle has been turned into a church. A few hundred years go by, and that's the history. So I say all of this this morning because Christianity, Jesus, the Bible isn't myth, it's history. Our faith is not based on legend, but on uh, historically factual events. And the evidence, frankly, is quite compelling. Man, come with us to Israel and you will be blown away by the archaeology and by the history. And periodically, as is the case for all of us, you will be reduced to tears. Our faith is based on historical, factual truth. Not myth, not legend. All right, let me move on. There's a second major item that we bump into in Mark chapter 1, and that is this issue of demon possession. So if you go to verse 23, you notice in verse 23 there was a man uh, possessed by an evil spirit, that is a demon, and notice he was in the synagogue, he was a religious insider, not an outsider. Demonized people are not always outside the church. Satan loves to send wolves into the church. In verse 24, the evil spirit inside the man identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God. And over and over we'll see in the, the Gospels that demons have some of the highest Christology in the Gospels. Because as we have read later in the chapter, they know who Jesus is. They know who he is. They're supernatural beings. But just like a lot of people today, they, they may know about God, they may even know about Jesus, but they weren't living in submission. They weren't living in obedience to Jesus. Then Jesus, demonstrating his divine supernatural power, rebukes the demon, commands the demon to leave, and the demon does with a shriek. So Mark is showing us that the inbreaking of the kingdom comes not just in the human arena, uh, but in the cosmic arena. Jesus doesn't just have power over physical things. Jesus has power over everything, including the spiritual realm. But this raises a fascinating question. And it's this question of demon possession today. Uh, so what is demon possession? And is it possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon, to be demon-possessed. I'm going to use an analogy that other people use. I really like this analogy. Uh, think of your house or think of your apartment. And let's say you're a free spirit. 
And, and, and because you're a free spirit, you decide that what you're going to do is, is, is you're going to live differently. And so you leave all your windows, all your doors open 24 hours a day, every day. And anybody or anything that wants to come in, man, you just allow them to come in, whether it's animals, whether it's people, whether it's um, just whatever, you allow them to come in. Now what's going to happen? Your place is going to get trashed. And you will suffer the consequences. Your place is going to get wrecked. Now maybe you do this in the name of spirituality, your spirituality. I mean, you're a free spirit. But, but your place is still going to get wrecked. Sin is the refusal to follow Jesus Christ. Now you can be spiritual, you can embrace spirituality and not follow Christ and that would be sin. If it's not Jesus, it's not biblical, it's sin. Sin is the breaking of God's law. It's failing to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's going to bed with your doors and windows wide open all the time in the middle of the night. We don't do that. Now the phrase here, possessed by an evil spirit, is better rendered demonized, suggesting that there are different levels of uh, demonic influence depending on how many doors you leave open, depending on the lack of boundaries in your life, and depending on how long you leave, leave them open. Now, if you are a Christian, Satan can't own your house. Christ does. Paul will tell the believers in Corinth, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. But if you continue to leave windows and doors open at, at, at night, man, you allow anything and anyone, you allow Satan to influence you. Hey, Hey man, your wife's asleep. You know that porn gives you a buzz. Man, log on. Or hey, hey. Uh, uh, you know nobody likes you. You, you know that, that the truth is nobody really cares about you. So if you just work crazy hard and you make a crazy amount of money, and you dress a certain way and you drive a certain car and you live a certain place, man, then people, people will notice you. And you'll be significant. Uh, you're a Christian, but you've left the door open in the middle of the night. A Christian can't be demon-possessed, but a Christian can be demonized. But the only power Satan and his demons have over you is the power that you give to them because of your unbelief or your disobedience because you have just, frankly, left the doors open. You don't have boundaries. Now, this is a very, very serious matter. It's a f serious matter in the Bible. It's a serious matter in the first century. It's a serious matter today because sin ultimately isn't just law-breaking. It's ultimately choosing sides. 
so uh, when you pick a uh, close friends or a boyfriend or a, a, a girlfriend and they don't know Christ and, and they're not walking with Christ and you invite them into their, your life and, and you become really close to them or, or, or when you do things you shouldn't do or go places you shouldn't go or think or say things you shouldn't think or, or say when you ignore God's word and you're just busy and God's word isn't saturating your, your, your mind and your heart and you're not, and it's been a long time since you've confessed or repented of any sin in your life, any of the many sins in your life, and you live this way, and it's habitual, you are in those areas choosing sides, the doors are open, and you are exposing yourself to extreme spiritual danger. No boundaries. Now, demonization in the Bible results in all sorts of horrible things. But this guy, in Mark chapter 1, at the beginning of our section, man, he looks like any of us. He's just sitting in the synagogue. And there's an evil spirit. So I want you to hear me, man. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Do not obsess on Satan, but do not ignore him. Don't ignore him. The antidote to demonization is actually found earlier in our passage. In verse 15, Jesus says, repent and believe. In verse 17, he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is saying, erect boundaries. Follow me, focus on me, do what I tell you to do. So if you are here this morning and you have never come to Jesus Christ, repent and believe. Embrace Jesus as your Savior. And if you have already done that, then what Jesus is saying, man, close the doors. Develop some boundaries. Follow me. Now, Peter will put all this together later in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 5. Look at how he articulates it. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for somebody to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So what Peter is saying, in, in light of the metaphor I'm using, is close the doors. Peter is saying, stand firm in the faith. Follow Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And don't be surprised. This is how he ends. Don't be surprised when you have setbacks, when you experience heartache, adversity. All right, that's demon possession. Let's go on to the third item that emerges from Mark chapter 1. And this is this issue of healing. There's a whole lot of healing that takes place in Mark chapter 1. Look at verses 29 to 31. Here we've got this wonderful story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Now even though the Catholic Church teaches that Peter wasn't married, here we are told he had a mother-in-law. And actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, we are told Peter had a wife. Now, most of us don't start out when we're dating 
or we're developing a relationship with someone of the opposite sex and think to ourselves, man, I can't wait till Friday night because I'm going to go looking for a mother-in-law. I love Friday nights. It's mother-in-law night. We don't live that way. But if God leads us and, and God allows us and we get married, guess what? We get a mother-in-law. Now Luke, the parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, tells us that she didn't have a high fever, or she didn't have just a fever, she had a high fever. She may have been close to death. And Luke also adds in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus rebuked the fever. And she's completely healed. You go down a couple of verses, we see more healing. Verse 34, even after the Sabbath is over. Now the Sabbath has come to an end. The Sabbath ended at Saturday at 6 p.m. And the whole town, what's the whole town doing? Well, it's gathering at Peter's house. Jesus is there, and Jesus is healing all sorts of diseases. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? That, that guy down the street with the club foot, no more club foot. Uh, the, the person's got vision, eye problems, uh, is blind, uh, all gone, healed. Uh, the bleeding, the, 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 the different cancers, all of them uh, are healed, and you know these people because it's a small area, and you're fishing buddies. Susie, Sam, Steve, Beth, on and on, healed. And then at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 40, Jesus heals a leper. This was huge. Because leprosy, which is a bacterial disease, is contagious. Uh, but in the Old Testament, first century economy, it was often thought to be highly contagious. And lepers were therefore deemed unclean. Not just diseased, but also spiritually unclean. And they were separated for health purposes, isolated from the rest of the community of God's people, and, and therefore many felt that a leper experienced a fate worse than death, a living death, if you will. The Jews also believed that only God could heal a leper, and whenever leprosy uh, was healed, it was an act of God. That Jesus heals this leper dramatically points to his deity. Now, by the way, uh, a couple different times here in chapter 1, we read Jesus silences. He silences the evil spirit earlier in the chapter. Uh, he, he silences uh, now the, the leper. Now, it's not because he doesn't want people to know who he is. Uh, but there's a couple things going on. Uh, number one is he doesn't want demons uh, proclaiming the, the good news. And, and number two, Jesus also wants to continue. He's just starting his ministry. He wants to continue to fly under the, the radar and not allow Jewish or, or Roman authorities to turn this into some sort of military or, or, or political uh, deal. But also... Jesus, as the Old Testament servant of the Lord, the prophesied servant of the Lord, was humble. Not showy, not flashy. 
He didn't want his ministry to be about miracles and dominance. He ultimately wants his ministry to be about his suffering and his death and his submission to God his Father. So there's this healing going on, and this raises the question, then, well, what about this today? Does God still supernaturally heal today? And the answer is yes, and yes, and yes. As a matter of fact, you travel further into the uh, New Testament, and we have this rich passage in James chapter 5 where James invites the sick in the church to call for the elders to pray for them and to anoint them with oil that they might be healed. Now over the years we've done this a lot at Wheaton Bible Church. And sometimes we are stunned as elders by the healing that takes place. Then at the end of this passage, call for the elders uh, have them pray for you, uh, anoint you, that you might be healed. We have this statement, James chapter 5. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is potent, it's powerful and effective. Now, does God heal today? You better believe it. And one of the main ways he heals is to the extent we pray. Uh, this verse answers the question for us whether or not God heals today. And when you look at the landscape of the way God the Holy Spirit is working around the world today, one of the ways we especially see this is in the developing world, in the under-resourced world, in the least-reached world, where in order to authenticate the, the message of God's Word, authenticate the, the Gospel, uh, the Gospel is often accompanied by miracles and healings. And so when I travel into the developing world, or I am with people in other places who are from the developing world, the stories of miracles and healings are just mind-boggling. So what we see in Mark chapter 1 is Jesus has power over demons and Jesus has power over diseases. That was true in the first century, it's true today. But this raises another question relative to healing. And it's this question, it's a, it's a much more painful question, it, it's a much more profound question. Then why doesn't God heal me? Or why doesn't God heal him? And why was it that my brother got shot in that shooting last week out east? Or how is it that my sister happened to be in the mall in Nairobi and was killed? Why doesn't God always heal? Why doesn't God always protect? Now, let me just say on the front end, uh, most of you know this is a personal issue for me. Because in spite of the prayers of thousands of people here at Wheaton Bible Church, lots of people around the world, I lost my first wife to cancer right in the midst of the busiest period in my life when we were relocating this church here to North Avenue. And an aggressive, ugly cancer. So this is a subject I've thought a lot about. It's a subject I've studied a lot. 
It's a big deal in our stepfamily because both Rhonda and I lost our spouses and our kids, all seven of them have lost a parent to cancer. This isn't just an academic deal. Now, I take this subject on in my book. When the bottom drops out, you can get it in our bookstore. But I want to say this morning a couple of things because we're right in the midst of all these healings here in Mark chapter 1. We need to understand that healing is a gift. It's a divine gift. And it can't be demanded. Like any, any miracle can't be uh, command, uh, demanded. And we can't ensure it or guarantee it based on a certain amount of faith or a certain activity. It's a, it's a divine gift that comes from God. It's not a merit thing, it's a grace thing. And sometimes when we pray, God answers yes. Sometimes when we pray, God says later. And sometimes when we pray, God says no. But underneath this, we must not confuse the so-called American dream, the, the current vision of the American dream, for the kingdom dream. Because the current vision of the American dream, and this is a subtle thing, and it's where the world, if we leave our doors and windows open, tends to eat our lunch. This American dream that we buy into is that the good life is a problem-free, pain-free life. And so the good life means, especially if I know God, that I should experience a life full of prosperity. That's a code word. Health, wealth, and success. And I mean, I should have... John, look at my Johnny. Johnny is six years old. And Johnny has already won a scholarship to Harvard. And we leave that door open and it knocks us off center. But the kingdom dream is different. Jesus says, man, follow me. But if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. And then the book of Hebrews tells us that one of the ways Jesus learned obedience is through the things he suffered. In other words, God uses pain, God uses setback, God uses job loss, God uses cancer, God uses all sorts of different things in our lives that we just hate. And I hate cancer to disciple us, to make us like Christ. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. So the kingdom dream is that the good life is serving and honoring Jesus in success or suffering, in life or death. And friends, i got to tell you, those two dreams are diametrically opposed. And the problem is we come to Jesus and, and we grow in Jesus and we continue to hold on to both. So what's the way forward? I will tell you what I did. Now here I'm speaking personally. Over and over I went to Jesus' statements in Gethsemane where Jesus said, take this cup from me. So we prayed for healing. We prayed like crazy. God, heal Carol, heal her. Take this cancer from us. God, you can do that in a nanosecond. Uh, 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 you can do that, not miss a beat with anything. God, heal her. 
But then we also went on, I also went on to pray, and I, I bet you I prayed this thousands of times over that year. Not my will, but thy will be done. So we prayed for healing, and we prayed for the grace to submit. To submit to whatever God chose in his sovereignty to do. Knowing that God's ways are higher than my ways. And I have to live, not my will, but thy will be done. So friends, I just want to say to you, healing is a divine thing. It's a, not a human thing. It can't be manipulated. No miracle can be manipulated. Otherwise, it's not a miracle. And our responsibility, our privilege as followers of Christ is to rest in the sovereignty of God and serve him whether he, as Job, say, as Job says, whether he uh, gives or whether he takes away. All right, now let me conclude. Let me go on to the authority and the compassion of Christ here, and I've got to move quickly. Here Jesus demonstrates his authority in his teaching, his authority over demons, his authority over disease, his authority over leprosy. All of Galilee is awash in the authority of Jesus. It's this incredible thing. But we are sinful, fallen people, and so we don't much like authority. We're inherently anti-authority, and the reality is we're inconsistent because we like to be in authority, and we like it when we're in authority over others, but we don't want to submit to the authority of anybody over us, and we especially don't like the authority of God over our lives. That's why we love the concept of freedom. That's why we struggle with the concept of obedience. We don't want to bow the knee to anybody else, but we want others to bow the knee to us. But the Bible tells us that the God of the universe is center stage and he will not share his authority with anyone else. So what Mark is doing here in chapter 1 is Mark is starting to introduce us to Jesus and throw the spotlight on Jesus to show us what the authority of God looks like when it becomes flesh. So we can submit to the inescapable authority of Jesus Christ. And it's only when you and I submit to this authority and we let God have his appropriate place in our, our lives that everything else in our lives will be in its rightful place. It will fit. It will work. It will sync up. So we either submit to Jesus as king or we spend our lives trying to be the king. And everything in our lives will reveal our choice, starting with our families, starting with our marriages, starting with our families. But Jesus here, according to Mark chapter 1, isn't this inaccessible, arrogant, indifferent authority figure. I mean, we see this over and over with his interaction with the man with the evil spirit, with his interaction with the, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and then especially with the leper. Look at verse 41. Uh, here in verse 41, we have this incredible intersection of the inescapable authority of Christ and the unconditional compassion of Christ because Jesus reaches out, touches the leper, and heals the leper. And in the first century, you didn't touch lepers, you ran from lepers. Now, you and I are the leper. We are unclean, we are dirty, we are defiled in the sight of God. We have spent a lifetime opening too many doors and, and windows and leaving them open and not erecting biblical uh, boundaries. And yet when Jesus touches the leper here and he, Jesus says, man, I love you, I care about you, even though nobody else does, I value you, Jesus says to this leper, I'm going to change you, I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to transform you. 
And he does. And touching this leper, cleansing this leper, prefigures the grace, the compassion, the the forgiveness Jesus will show us by going to the cross and dying in our place for our sins to restore us, to cleanse us, to transform us, and to rescue us from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, Mark chapter 1, came to rescue and restore. His touch, his death, changes everything. That was the point of the video we began with. That's the point Mark is making over and over in chapter 1. Jesus can and will change you. His authority is inescapable. His compassion, unrelenting, unconditional, unending. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we praise you and we worship you. Give us grace. Open our eyes to see Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Our prayer team will be down in front. They would love to pray with you.